Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Hi everyone, before we get started, just a quick heads up. It's the end of the academic year right now, and in addition to all of the craziness that normally goes with that, particularly in a year like this one, uh, I also have some continuing work going on in my house, uh, wrapping up some of the processes around moving into this new place, getting it set up, all that fun stuff. And long story short, thanks to a combination of just general busyness and crazy scheduling, uh, I have some folks working in my house right now as I'm trying to record. I'm going to do my best to minimize the noise bleed through and to deal with any, you know, loud noises happening with the work they're doing so that you don't hear too much of it, but there's probably going to be a little bit you'll pick up in the background. I do apologize for that. It should only be an issue really this week and next week, and then after that, hopefully we should be done. In the meantime, thank you for your patience and your forbearance. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 393, The Lords of the Sea, part 4. The year was 1420, and Song Hui-gyong was on a journey to visit Japan. Song was Korean, a member of the Yangban aristocracy which had come to power under the new Korean ruling dynasty, the Joseon. The Joseon were a fairly fresh face in the political arena. Only 28 years earlier, the first Joseon king, King Taejo, had established this new dynasty by overthrowing the previous one which had collaborated with Mongol rulers and generally mismanaged the Korean state. Now, the fourth king of Joseon, Sejong, was trying to solidify his new dynasty's hold over Korea. He spent his reign doing just that, with everything from reforms to the legal code to overhauling the nation's relationship with its powerful Buddhist religious institutions to revising the very nature of the Korean language, supporting the development of Hangul, the phonetic alphabet that today allows students of Korean to dodge the thousands of hours of ideographic character memorization expected of those of us who study Japanese or Chinese, the lucky bastards. Anyway, Song Hui-gyong was on a mission to Japan to help his lord with one of the many problems facing Korea at this time, one which would prove notoriously thorny to solve, the problem of Japan. The two realms already had a complex history at this point, to say nothing of what would come later. On the one hand, their geographic proximity made trade and cultural interchange a pretty regular activity, naturally enough. On the other, there was also a long-standing history of military conflict between the two. Beyond the outright military conflicts, the Japanese wars in Korea way back in the early days of recorded Japanese history or the Mongol invasions in the 1200s, which had been based out of Korea and included a lot of forcibly conscripted Korean soldiers, there was also a long-standing issue with piracy. 
a combination of political weakness, Korea and Japan both recovering from Mongol invasions, Japan racked by civil war between pro- and anti-Ashkaga shogunate forces, and remote geography made the islands in between Japan and Korea, particularly the large island of Tsushima, into havens for gangs of pirates. These pirates were already being labeled by Korean leaders as a specifically Japanese issue, though modern research tends to suggest they were fairly multi-ethnic, composed of bands of sea people from across the coasts of Japan, Korea, and China. Indeed, one of the pirate leaders of this time was named Ajibaldo, a name that is definitely not Japanese. I've heard it described as either Korean or Mongolian, though I lack the background to say for sure. But regardless of who these raiders were, the land they were operating out of was claimed by Japan. In particular, Tsushima itself, as well as the Goto and Iki Islands off the coast of Kyushu, were all major hubs for piracy. Tsushima and its pirate presence had been a particular flashpoint. The previous Korean dynasty, the Goryeo, had actually led an abortive attack to clear the island of pirates in 1389, which was abandoned as the rebellions which overthrew that dynasty began. Seven years later, the new Joseon dynasty tried precisely the same tactic, striking the island militarily. However, none of these approaches seemed to work. Attacking the island simply resulted in many of the pirates fleeing, and those who didn't do so in time were swiftly replaced by new arrivals. Nor did appealing to the nearest official of the Ashikaga shogunate, the Kyushu Tandai Shibusawa Mitsuyori. He was far too caught up in fighting to assert the Ashikaga family's power in Kyushu against rebellious clans. The only thing which did succeed in buying a measure of peace was cutting a deal with the leading family of Tsushima, the Seoul clan of samurai who served as the military governors of the island, and their patriarch, Seoul Sadashige. Specifically, Sadashige agreed to deal with the pirate issue in exchange for the right to manage the Korea-Japan trade and skim a little off the top for himself. However, Sadashige died in 1418 and the pirate problem picked immediately back up. It got so bad that the very next year, King Sejong announced a new invasion of Tsushima in order to clear the island of pirates. He committed over 200 ships and north of 10,000 soldiers to the cause, at least according to period records, which should always be viewed with some suspicion. However, the invasion ended indecisively. Initially, Korean forces did meet with success, but as they pressed inland into Tsushima, they were caught in an ambush by loyalists of the So clan and driven back. Ultimately, the attack was abandoned. The situation between Korea and Japan was, then, in a word, tense. And that's why Song Hui-gyong was on his way to Kyoto to meet with the shogun. The hope among the Korean leadership was to work out some sort of modus vivendi with the Japanese to deal with the ever-present pirate problem. But Song had to be careful because his status as a diplomat did not protect him. Just ten years earlier, another Korean envoy named Yang Su had gone on a mission to Kyoto to convey respects on behalf of the Korean monarchy upon the death of the previous shogun Ashikaga Yoshimitsu. Yang's ship had been laden with funeral gifts from tiger pelts to Korean ginseng, yet according to Yang's report, once he arrived home, things went south as soon as he arrived in the Seto Inland Sea. Quote, Ferocious pirates stole everything, leaving us in a very precarious situation. 
They conceal themselves on remote islands. They often sail out, threaten, and rob trading ships, unquote. So it was that Song set out full of trepidation. He had read Yang Su's report upon returning home, after all, and was well aware of the danger. And in the end, he had the exact same problem. When he arrived off the coast of what's now Hiroshima Prefecture in the Inland Sea, his ship too was ambushed by pirates, who had hidden behind a nearby island, only to dart out an attack once Song's ship approached. Song and company did manage to get away, escaping to a nearby port on Kamigari Island, and upset all the while because they had received assurances from the shogun that he would order the local lords of the Inland Sea to protect Korean ambassadors. And to be fair, the shogun had tried. Those orders were just not always respected by local seaborne lords. In Song's case, upon arriving on Kamigari, he learned what had happened. The local pirate family, the Tagaya clan, had fractured into two competing groups over a succession dispute. Both sides were engaged in a battle for legitimacy, and had stepped up their raiding to build up a reputation as fearsome pirates as a result, though they were not yet openly fighting each other. And again, these kind of issues where the shogun's orders proved less than totally effective over water were something of a regular occurrence. Thirteen years after Song Hye-gyong's expedition, another Korean ambassador traveling under the shogun's protection would have his vessel raided on his way to the major port of Kyushu, Hakata. When the ambassador complained to the local shogun official, the Kyushu Tandai, the man ordered an investigation, upon which time one of the local warrior clans, the Ouchi, produced some of the stolen goods, saying they'd found the pirates responsible but had been unable to capture them. In fact, it's far more likely said pirates worked for the Ouchi, who may have even known about the raid in advance and worked out a deal with the pirates to let them off the hook. Ultimately, the only way Song Hui-gyong was able to finish his mission was actually with the help of pirates. Specifically, he ended up meeting with a Hakata-based Chinese merchant named Sol Qin, or Song Jin in Chinese, who had connections to the local pirate outfits and explained the situation with the Tagaya clan to him. Sol was also able to broker a safe passage deal for Song Hui-gyong, who recorded in his diary, quote, the writ of the king of Japan, the shogun, does not extend here. As he does not have control over this area, there are no escort ships forthcoming. If a ship coming from the east has an eastern pirate on board, then the western pirates will not harm it. If a ship coming from the west has a western pirate on board, then the eastern pirates will not harm it. So Sokin paid 7,000 in coin to hire an eastern pirate to come sail aboard our ship." Unquote. With the help of this escort from one of the two factions of the Tegaya clan, Song was able to continue on his journey. He even found a surprisingly warm welcome among the Tegaya pirates once he continued on. As he stopped at one of the ports along his way, Song recounted, quote, A Japanese pirate reached here in a launch, and coming over to me, he said, Please be at ease. I have explained your situation to these people. They say, Come closer to their house and take lodgings here. Please, your honor, you can stay this one time. The men and women, young and old, boarded ships and hurried over to come here, asking if they could come aboard and see me. I permitted it. In the middle of all this, their chieftain, a peculiar monk, came over to talk. We exchanged words and there were no differences between the two of us. He and I talked quite happily, exchanging answers. He pointed out my route for the morrow and then invited me to disembark and come to his house in order to enjoy some tea." 
quote. Stories like that of Song Hui Gyeong are helpful, I think, when we start thinking about Japan's sea peoples and how they were perceived abroad, because it was through narratives like the one Song wrote about his journey once he got home that the elite of Korea got their image of what a Japanese pirate was like. And indeed, not just Koreans. Part of the tributary trade between China and Korea involved passing intelligence reports from Korea to China to keep the Chinese bureaucracy in the know about what was happening in its tributary states. And information about these pirate bands was a part of that information trade. And despite the warm welcome Song Hui Gyeong received at the end of this little tale, warm enough that he wrote a poem about it, actually, I circulate among the islands where cliffs soar high and steep, clapboard shacks and brushwood gates open on the sea. Aboard ship I sought only protection and a guide, but then comes the invitation, come inside my house and drink. Despite that lovely poem, the common image of these pirates which circulated overseas was of savage barbarians whose outlandish nature made them fundamentally antithetical and opposed to proper civilized society. Most of the ink spilled during this period about Japan-based pirate gangs emphasized the threat they presented to the civilized world, particularly if they came together. For example, one Korean official who visited Hakata in 1430 reported on the ascendancy of the Ouchi family of samurai in that area, and included in his report a great deal of worrying that the growing power of the Ouchi would lead that clan to unite the pirates of the region and lead them on a raid against Korea itself. And these concerns were not unjustified, as the long history of raiding, and indeed Song Hui Gyeong's own brush with pirates, as well as those of other Korean envoys past and future, made very clear. But it's also worth noting that we can't necessarily take all these depictions of the pirates at face value. You see, one of the tricky things about this period is that the governments of both Korea and China at this time had a tendency to label any kind of trade without official authorization as piracy. In the 1400s, China was ruled by the Ming Dynasty, whose founder, Zhu Yanzhong, also known as the Hongwu Emperor, was very invested in a vision of a largely static, primarily agricultural society, which could be made totally harmonious, or somewhat more cynically, totally subject to the emperor's fiat. Unregulated commerce was, in this view, a hugely disruptive element, not to mention at odds with the primarily agricultural focus of this ideal society. And so trade had to be carefully managed, and in particular used as an incentive within the tributary system to keep other tributary states happy with China. Any trade outside of the tributary system was, in the eyes of officials of the Ming Dynasty, piracy. And yes, if you're very familiar with the history of the Ming, I'm simplifying a bit here, but bear with me, I'm trying to cover a pretty complicated topic. The kings of Korea's Joseon dynasty similarly regulated trade, both out of ideological concerns, they shared the same agriculture-centric vision as their Chinese counterparts, and a desire to fill the dynasty's coffers. Indeed, one of the agreements the kings of Joseon eventually reached with the So family of Tsushima was that the So had exclusive rights to manage trade with Korea. All other Japanese ships coming to Korean ports without permits from the So family would be labeled as pirates and driven away. And this became something of a point of contention, because particularly in the case of the China trade, 
Japanese rulers were not keen on this whole trade restriction shtick. The China trade was worth a lot of money, both in terms of physical goods and literal actual money, because the common currency of Asia at this time was Chinese coinage, particularly that of previous Chinese dynasties, the Ming itself having something of a constant issue with devalued currency. Japanese ships took these Chinese coins back to Japan by the literal boatload, and thanks to these Ming dynasty restrictions, demand consistently outpaced supply coming in via official channels. So Japanese rulers and the sea-based families they hired on to help with these trade voyages were forever looking for excuses to get around the official trade system and make some good good money off of going to China by circumventing what we call the tally trade. The tally trade was the mechanism by which the tributary trade system worked, and it honestly was pretty ingenious. Upon the ascension of a new emperor in China, tributaries would send envoys to congratulate the new Son of Heaven, and as a part of the visit, they would receive a book of what we call tallies, kangō in Japanese, kanhe in Chinese. These tallies would be marked for a specific year based on how often the given tributary state was allowed to send trade mission. The envoys from the tributary states would have to take their tallies back home, and whenever an official tribute and trade mission went to China, it would need the correct year's tally, which would be matched with a copy kept in Beijing, to be accepted as an official tribute ship. When the existing Chinese monarch died, or stepped down, that happened too on occasion, the next mission to arrive in China would also receive a fresh set of tallies, and so the cycle would continue. In Japan, this system was adopted when the Ashikaga shoguns, starting with Ashikaga Yoshimitsu, accepted nominal subordination to China and the tributary status that came with it. To be fair, they didn't have a lot of other options. The China trade was, as we've mentioned, ludicrously valuable, and simply walking away from it and refusing to participate in the tribute system would have been challenging to say the least. That's particularly true in the case of Japan, Ming rulers were aware of the power of Japanese pirate kings and extremely wary of them as a destabilizing force in this whole carefully constructed trade system. Indeed, Japanese pirates were such a source of consternation that when the first Ming emperor executed his chancellor, Hu Weiyong, for ostensibly trying to overthrow the dynasty, though it's unclear if that was true or if the emperor was just jealous of him, one of the charges leveled against Hu was that he was conspiring with Japanese pirates to seize the throne. The Ashikaga shoguns would manage the tribute relationship for the next century, with a brief interruption during the reign of Ashikaga Yoshimochi, who rejected even nominal subordination to China, financial costs be damned. His successors did not share that view, needless to say. But the power of the Ashikaga shoguns, as we've noted, would eventually fade away. By the 1500s, they were reduced to powerless figureheads, and among other things, this had a huge impact on the tally trade and the perception that all Japanese sailors were pirates by default. The best way to explain this is by talking about something called the Ningbo Incident, which took place in 1523, and here we have to talk a bit more about some goings-on in Japan. By the 1500s, the Ashikaga Shogun was nothing more than a pawn in the hands of powerful warlords who would use him as a figurehead. During the 1520s, the two clans vying for control over him were the Ouchi and Hosokawa families. One of the reasons the Shogun was worth fighting over was control of those tally books. Whoever controlled the Shogun could use the tallies to send official trade missions 
and make serious bank. Indeed, to maximize returns on this whole scheme, whichever warlord controlled the shogun tended to send far more ships and merchants than the Chinese necessarily anticipated or wanted. One study by academic Charlotte von Verscher estimates that the total value of goods sent during the 1543 tribute mission was nine times higher than those sent in the 1433 one. This in a trade that was supposed to be regular and predictable and thus controllable for the Chinese. The amount of money involved on the Japanese side also increased the potential for violence substantially. First, to safeguard their investments, the shogun and their various puppet masters made regular use of contracted pirate fleets and sailors as escorts, or even as crews for the trade missions themselves, which did, of course, little to allay Chinese fears about the destabilizing nature of trade with the Japanese. And second, given the stakes of the trade itself and the fact that many of the Japanese involved were pirates, things could occasionally get, well, let's call it testy. For example, in 1477, the Japanese delegation to Beijing got into a violent altercation with another tributary delegation. It's unclear why, but one imagines it had something to do with trade rights. The 1486 tribute mission had a similarly violent outcome. A Chinese merchant hired to help arrange the return journey back to Japan embezzled a bunch of the money and ran off to southern China instead. The Japanese delegation, incensed, ended up hiring a Japanese expat living in Beijing to chase him down and kill him, which of course the Ming government really did not like. Things got particularly ornery in 1496, when members of the Japanese delegation in Ningbo, the official port of arrival for all Japanese trade vessels, were accused of murdering a resident of the city. As a result of that whole kerfuffle, the emperor ended up decreeing that only 50 members of the Japanese delegation were even allowed to make the trip to Beijing from this point onward, instead of the usual 100. The Japanese response to these outbreaks of disorder was usually to hire more pirates to do ride-alongs and protect the Japanese delegation, which, as you might imagine, didn't exactly allay anxieties. And all of this came to a head in Ningbo in 1523. At the start of the 1500s, the sitting shogun and holder of the official tallies was Ashikaga Yoshitane, a puppet and long-standing ally of the powerful Ouchi family. However, in 1421, Yoshitane ended up picking a fight with a separate powerful family, the Hosokawa, who ended up seizing Kyoto and chasing him away. The Hosokawa then installed a new shogun, Ashikaga Yoshiharu, in office. So when it came time to send a new tribute mission to China in 1523 and reap the sweet rewards of trade, both the Ouchi-backed Ashikaga Yoshitane and the Hosokawa-backed Ashikaga Yoshiharu claimed the legal right to sponsor a mission. Yoshitane and the Ouchi still had the tallies for the official sitting Chinese emperor, Zhengde, and sponsored a mission led by a Zen monk named Kendo Sosetsu. All Yoshiharu and the Hosokawa family had were old, defunct tallies from the previous emperor, Hongzhi. They also picked a Zen monk to lead their mission, Ronko Zuisa, and contracted with a Chinese merchant living in Japan named Song Suqing to tag along and explain the situation about how they were the real legitimate authorities and had the correct tallies stolen from them. 
Both fleets of trade ships made their way to Ningbo, the official port of call for all Japanese tribute fleets coming to China. The Ouchi one got there first, and that, in combination with the fact that they had the up-to-date tallies, meant they had a big advantage in terms of winning the trade dispute, so to speak, and proving that they were the legitimate tribute mission. However, the Hosokawa fleet then arrived, and the Chinese merchant Song Suqing proceeded to bribe the Ningbo harbor master, as well as the eunuch Lai Un, who was in charge of trade in Ningbo, to unload their cargo first, which meant the Hosokawa delegation would get to Beijing first and be the ones to set the narrative about who was really the legitimate trade mission. Incensed, the Ouchi and their monk leader, Ronko Zisetsu, took the very unmonk-like step of storming the Hosokawa ships, killing the monk in charge of the Hosokawa expedition as well as several other Hosokawa sailors, and chasing Song Suqing, who wisely fled the area, almost 120 kilometers or 75 miles inland to the city of Shaoxing. When they couldn't find him, the Ouchi sailors plundered their way back to Ningbo, kidnapped Ningbo's garrison commander, stole some ships full of plunder, and sailed away. As you might imagine, the Ming Dynasty did not take this well. Astonishingly, the Ouchi were allowed to continue trading as tributaries for a time, but under very heavy restrictions, three ships, 100 people in total on the tribute mission, only every 10 years. The Hosokawa, despite their pretensions that they were the legitimate representatives of Japan and had been pursuing pirates coming to Ningbo, were not allowed to return. Meanwhile, the Ouchi eventually got themselves kicked out of China altogether after repeatedly violating these new rules, returning way more often than every ten years and bringing far more than three ships. The last official Ouchi tribute mission was in 1549. After that point, the tributary trade was severed, as the Ming leadership refused to give new tallies to the Japanese and demanded all the old ones be turned over. But of course, neither the Ouchi nor any other group in Japan was going to just give up on the China trade. There was way too much money on the table for that to even be a possibility. Both the Ouchi and other powerful families in Japan continued to sponsor trade missions to China. When these were turned away from official ports, they would simply engage in private commerce with Chinese merchants who lacked the scruples about the corrupting power of commerce to distort social harmony that the Ming Dynasty's scholar bureaucrats held. Shuangyu, an island off the coast of Zhejiang province at the mouth of the Yangtze River, was a particularly notorious hub for this kind of smuggling. And when reports of this illicit trade got back to Beijing, you can imagine it didn't do much to change the image of Japanese sailors as basically all being pirates. Nor indeed did the fact that many of them were in fact pirates and resorted to raiding China's coast when they were turned away from official trade ports. Japanese seafarers even started turning to Chinese smugglers who already had something of a reputation in their homeland to sustain the China trade, again to predictable results. One of the most notorious was Wang Zhe, also known as Wang Wufeng, who made his way to China in 1544 on a rejected tributary trade ship, and quickly developed a reputation as an excellent smuggler for those interested in a bit of side China trade. In particular, he built a great reputation among the Ouchi. Ouchi Yoshitaka, the lord of the Ouchi family, had been looking to acquire some high-end Chinese paintings which Wang secured for him as a gift, 
proving his ability to get Chinese goods out of the country. Wang Zhe had originally been a salt merchant, but his business had gone under, so he'd moved to southern China, where the reach of the Beijing government was fairly weak, and turned to a life of smuggling and piracy. And apparently he was pretty good at it. A Japanese envoy to Korea, when asked if he'd seen Wang Zhe, replied that he had, and quote, he, Wang, led around 300 people and sailed on one great ship. Normally he wears clothes of high quality. All in all, there are about 2,000 people who follow him. Unquote. Attempts by the Chinese to stop Wang Zhe failed completely. A Ming fleet raised the smuggling center at Shuangyu in 1548, but Wang and his followers escaped and set up shop in Japan, specifically Hirado and the Goto Islands in Kyushu. Wang started styling himself as a sort of pirate king, calling himself the King of Hui and dressing like a member of the nobility. When Ming officials came to Japan to urge the Japanese to clamp down on him, Wang intercepted them and, rather hilariously, convinced them that he was the only one who could help the Chinese suppress piracy in Japan. He then took these Chinese envoys around Japan and made a whole show of having conversations with the local lords about dealing with the pirate problem. At some point, I'd like to do an entire episode on Wang Zhe because, as you might have gathered from all this, he's a pretty interesting guy, both in his own right and because of how he's remembered today. On the one hand, nationalist historians in China tend to depict him as a Han Jian, a traitor to the Chinese nation, for his willingness to work with Japanese pirates. This term, Han Jian, is the same one used to label those who collaborated with the Japanese Empire in the 20th century, so it's a pretty loaded phrase. On the other hand, more modern histories tend to depict him as a seminal figure in Japan-China relations, helping to bridge the gap between the two countries and illuminating the ways in which the cultural and economic boundaries of the 1500s were far less sharply defined than we might imagine today. But we don't have time for all that right now. Instead, I'll just tell you the short version, which is that in 1557, Wang Zhe went back to China to try and secure an imperial pardon for himself for smuggling, as well as securing reforms to the trade system to make it more open. However, the liberal bureaucrats he'd befriended to support this idea lost influence in an unrelated scandal, and Wang ended up being arrested. He would die in a Chinese prison in 1560. Meanwhile, clans Wang had done dealings with in Japan like the Otomo and Ouchi would constantly try to find ways to reopen trade with China, sending trade fleets to the country hoping to find sympathetic or at least bribable port officials. Many of these were turned away and some were outright attacked by Ming coastal defense fleets. Trade with China would remain uneven and patchy, reliant primarily on smuggling, until the mid-1600s, when new governments in both Japan and China, respectively the Tokugawa shogunate and the Qing dynasty, would re-establish a semi-official trade network. In the case of Korea's Joseon dynasty, the Japanese pirate issue followed a fairly similar pattern. The Joseon dynasty relied on a similar system of trade permits tied to official diplomatic recognition, in this case to the So clan of Tsushima, which the kings of Korea had made the official managers of the Japan-Korea trade. Anyone coming to a Korean port from Japan who did not have official documentation from the So clan was condemned as a pirate and turned away. In theory, this was supposed to assure a harmonious trade relationship in accord with Confucian principles. 
this, this became a way for the So clan to work with Japanese pirate lords to make literal boatloads of cash. The So clan would work with merchants on the Japanese mainland to set up these embassies, essentially selling the right to trade with Korea to the highest bidder. Trade fleets were then protected by or outright staffed by the same pirate families we've been talking about this whole time. Those pirates would actually game the Korean tribute system to their advantage. Under the rules of that system, the King of Korea would present gifts to tributaries matching the status of the tributaries themselves, with higher-ranking envoys getting better gifts. So many of the pirates leading these missions would make up inventive or dignified titles for themselves to claim a higher status among the Koreans, whose knowledge of the inner workings of Japanese politics at the time were, let's call it patchy at best, and thus to make more money. One of the branches of the Murakami pirates, the Inoshima Murakami, got in on this, for example. One of the recorded tributaries in Korean records is, quote, the pirate admiral Fujiwara no Asan Murakami Bichu no Kami Kuneshige of Aki province. This was the name of the Inoshima Murakami leader, but there is no such title as pirate admiral. Japanese pirates made this term up to get better treatment from the Koreans. You can also see that Murakami Kuneshige has made up a bunch of traditional Japanese titles in order to receive better treatment and more money. Bichu no Kami is an old title from the imperial system of the Heian era, and the Fujiwara family are an ancient and powerful clan in Japanese politics. The Murakami, of course, had no legitimate claim to either of those titles. Eventually, of course, the Koreans did get wise to these imposter embassies, and a similar pattern occurred. Japanese ships started to be turned away from Korean ports, which meant less official trade and more smuggling and raiding. The end of the civil wars in Japan with the rise of Toyotomi Hideyoshi did, as we discussed last week, bring an end to outright piracy. One of Hideyoshi's many reforms, which was then shamelessly stolen by Tokugawa Ieyasu, as so many good ideas were, was to start officially licensing overseas trade himself. Hideyoshi's hope was to try and break the link between commerce, violence, and piracy in Japan. He wanted to fix the image problem that this association had created for Japanese merchants abroad, who were increasingly assumed to just always be pirates. Of course, Hideyoshi also ended up at war with both Korea and China in the 1590s, a war in which he made use of many of the same tamed bands of pirates who had once raided Korea and China to support his invasions, so PR-wise that probably didn't help a lot. Ultimately, Japanese pirates, the Woko slash Weigu, remained a major figure in the historical memory of both Japan and Korea, as well as China. The official history of the Ming Dynasty written after the dynasty's overthrow even presented all Japanese as, quote, inherently of a cunning nature, unquote, and prone whenever there was an opportunity to, quote, plunder us without restraint, unquote, resorting to legitimate trade only as a last resort. Today, this history has become a part of a longer nationalist narrative in both Korea and China about the nature of the Japanese threat, tied up in lingering anxieties about the pre-World War II Japanese Empire. In reality, of course, Japan's pirates are not indicative of a centuries-long conspiracy to subjugate the Asian mainland. What's really at play here, to my mind, is a simple clash of systems between Japanese seafarers who did engage in piracy and were mostly concerned with maximizing their income, and Korean and Chinese leaders 
who viewed a trade as subordinate to correct social order. When those views rather unavoidably clashed with each other, the Japanese who refused to cooperate with the official system were labeled as pirates. Their unwillingness to cooperate with an obviously correct system was proof of their savage and uncivilized nature. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patron Scott Seidel for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we switch gears to talk about the failure of one of Japan's largest banks in the 1990s and the ways this shook up Japan's financial world. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.